Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Hey, Bill, thanks for calling in today. It's my pleasure, Tara. I really look forward to our conversation, and uh, thank you for everything you're doing. Yeah, well, um, so Bill and I met um, in a training I was doing out on the East Coast, and um, and I just I'm fascinated by what you're doing, and I think it's really important um, because of the just enormous need for what you're doing. So um, I think you can describe, um, you can describe your bank better than I can. So why don't you start there? Sure. Uh, So I am the agricultural lending manager here at Ephrata National Bank, which is in the small town of Ephrata, which is uh, squarely located in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. So uh, we lend to, to the likes of farmers primarily and uh, we are moving up that what I like to call agricultural food chain. So it's mm-hmm. it's any anything from suppliers to agriculture through production agriculture, um, even up through manufacturing of food um, and added value processing. Um, we haven't quite got to the retailers yet, but pretty well every step you can get mm-hmm. to up into the retailers. And That's... so we're really focused on that that piece of the business. Um, mm-hmm. Everett National Bank is a a billion-dollar community bank, and so it was founded in 1881 and uh, continues to be an independent bank, was never bought, nor has ever bought any other bank, so it's 100% organic growth, and that's part of our tradition and part of our foundation that we jump off of. So a billion-dollar community bank, that is that is really unusual, isn't it? It, it is. Um, in in you know the general scope of banking, we're still a fairly small bank. Of course. Um, but as far as a community bank goes, we may we may you know push towards the the kind of median or mm-hmm. a little bit larger. So we have what I like to say is we have the strength of a larger bank, the complexity of a larger bank, mm-hmm. but we have the feel, touch, and the decision making of a of a smaller bank that's really grounded in our our community. Right. Right. And. Is most of what your bank does ag lending, or are it's you just over twenty five percent? Okay, so our our ag portfolio is about twenty five percent of our total assets, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, I would say another twenty five percent, roughly speaking, in in consumer or residential lending, if you would. I just kind of lump those together. So, mm-hmm. indi- lending to individuals for for personal needs, and then the other fifty percent is rooted in uh, C and I. So. Uh, commercial and industrial. Okay. Okay. So pretty diversified. And um, so most people know Lancaster County as kind of the uh, uh, center for the Amish and Mennonite communities, right? That's correct. Yeah. And so um, are you serving the community or those communities? We do. We do. Um, it's it's definitely part of our rich heritage to serve those unique communities um, both the what we call old order or plain sect, all the way up mm-hmm. to more your modern sects within those yeah. um, within those religions or, or mm-hmm. you know churches, as we we'd say, as yeah. well as others. But we do have a large uh, percentage of our clientele that are either Amish or Mennonite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I I I sort of 
I know very little about those communities. So I had a, an assumption that they didn't interact with uh, um, you know, sort of English, they call it English, right? Um, sure. lend, lending community, but that's apparently not true. Yeah, no, it is not. It's actually, I hear that quite a bit, you know, from my own family and friends. Um, I'm, I'm a sure. transplant to Lancaster, so when I get outside of Lancaster, you know, they're always saying, well, they don't borrow money, do they? Um, you know, quite the contrary. Every business has a working capital need or a capitalization need. Mm-hmm. Um, farms in Lancaster County today are selling on the open market for $25,000 an acre. And so Holy you know, in order cow. to get there, you have got to find capital. Yeah. And, you know, what is unique about those, those uh, churches and those folks is that they will pull their money into private loans. Uh, they've got a number of different structures to do so. So we're always working with private money a little bit, you know, either okay. from dad, maybe an uncle, as well as those churches um, have some entities of their own. So the Old Order Amish mm-hmm. have what they call Old Order Amish Helping Hand. Okay. Uh, and, and that's a group of church folks that have been fairly successful in business will pull their money and provide that as a low interest rate, um, generally speaking, a fairly flexible payment loan uh, to a startup mm-hmm. farmer. And so we can engage and maybe, you know, finance 50% of a startup and work with those organizations to do the other 50%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that sort of acts like equity then? In it a way? does. It's subordinate debt. So we yeah. treat it as equity. Um, generally, mm-hmm. you know, if, if an organization like Old Order Helping Hand or Weaverland Financial come in behind a farmer, there is an element of additional safety there, although it's not a direct guarantee Mm-hmm. It would be, in a, you know, kind of an implied guarantee. Right, right, right. So, um, oh, God, that, that, that just all provoked a, a thousand questions for me. $25,000 a $25, an acre land, um, it seems to me like that would be really hard to come up with a farm model, that business model that could actually work. Exactly, Tara. And that is really the dilemma if you wanted to boil down the trouble that we're having in Pennsylvania around the dairy industry, agriculture in general, um, and I'll use the term not derogatorily, but maybe just so everyone understands what I'm getting at, what I would consider to be conventional agriculture. So that's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, producing a commodity product and selling it off your farm as a commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the trouble is today that that model just doesn't have enough return on the asset to to really make a $25,000 an acre farm, mm-hmm. um, you know, profitable. You might get it to break even if you're lucky. Um, so there's really two answers to that, right? We can, we can stretch the terms on a loan. So as a banker, as a capital provider, we can extend terms. So that's where a farmer may say, well, I'm going to take a 40-year FSA loan, or mm-hmm. some of my competitors um, have said, we'll do 25-year terms. And that's mm-hmm. really what they're doing is saying, boy, there's not a model conventionally to churn enough uh, profit to pay for that kind of that equity infusion that's mm-hmm. required to be loan principal every year right. uh, into the farm. So we stretch those payments out. The trouble with that is that it really increases the risk of that farm. And if you think about it on the life cycle of the individual business owner, you know, 40 years, my goodness, I'll be... That's I'll a be, long time. Yeah. I'll be really happy if I make it 40 years in a career, right? Right. And so you're really talking about you know, a farmer paying interest their entire working career. Right. Um, what I like to do is, is normal and customary terms across the nation mm-hmm. um, is 20 years on farmland. So 
So right. we're, what we're working really hard to do is change the price conversation. Mm-hmm. So we either help our, our farmers focus on their efficiency of number of units they put out the door. If you want to be a commodity producer, you need to push more units out the door per acre than right. anyone else or change price. And mm-hmm. that's really where our vision of our bank is getting into this idea of, you know, additional value, whether it would mm-hmm. be, you know, on a very simple level, I, I use that cavalierly, but um, is organic production. So mm-hmm. our organic farmers are getting 24 to $27 a hundred weight right now. Our conventional guys are getting 14 to 15 mailbox. Mm-hmm. And so you can add $10 right, right to your bottom line, if you would, by converting to organic. And it fits our farms very well. We generally, because of the plain and the old order influences, the agrarian influence of the Mennonites and Amish, tend to be very heavy labor with family labor. Sure. Great work ethic. And so when you need to get in the field and cultivate, that's not a foreign concept for our farmers. It's something mm-hmm. they do. And, um, and so they can generally convert pretty easily to organic. So just that simple move will help somebody. But... Mm-hmm. A farmer also has the option to possibly engage in cheese making or in, in Pennsylvania, we have a very vibrant uh, raw milk market. Mm-hmm. There's a great consumer base that, right. you know, that will accept that risk of, of consuming raw milk, if you would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we've had a great track record in our department of ag here supports it and, and mm-hmm. monitors it and has rules that, so we feel we have a great market. Mm-hmm. So that's another way. Right. It's in, I have farmers who are now doing, you know, small vat pasteurization for fluid mm-hmm. milk. We've got yogurt producers. We have uh, one fellow that just started up his ice cream plant here. Um, mm-hmm. so a lot of things that are really about changing that price component. On yeah. The- and that's yeah. how we're getting the, the return on asset for mm-hmm. $25,000. Right, right. And, and all those things require more investment. You know, really ironically, more capital, more working capital, exactly yeah. all the things we talked about in the training. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was in um, a, a, a town called Coloma, Iowa, um, last week, and that is a community that has a, a large Mennonite community there. Mm-hmm. And I was driving into town, and there was the yogurt factory. And I was looking at it because I used to run a cheese company and a, then the whey company. And so um, I kind of know what dairy, you know, from looking from the outside, like how big a dairy company is and stuff. And and I'm like, huh. That that it, that is kind of an old school. It would be an old school in Wisconsin factory. It wasn't that big, um, but big enough that they probably have some good economies of scale, and um, they were set up to um, receive milk from. It looked like um, from in all sorts of ways. So, mm-hmm. um, I bet your landscape is like that. Very much so. What I like to say is there's a couple of different levels that businesses and food businesses go through particularly, but it's really not unique to food businesses. Um, a lot of our food businesses today, are, are you, could, you could mirror the same growth uh, across gazebos, what we call gazebos and shed builders, mm-hmm. uh, that were all kind of those businesses that took off in the 90s that they were the answer to the previous depression in agriculture, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. By in the non-ag businesses. Well, yeah. that's been done. It's been fairly saturated. That option's not available to today's farmers as much oh, as it Right. And so when we look at the life cycle of that new food business, they're really following the same steps. 
maybe slightly different. Growth patterns might be different. But mm-hmm. if you think about it, it's a what I like to call proof of concept, which is, you know, I think I'm going to hang a shingle at the end of my lane and I'm going to sell something. Right. And they do it. And, and it's a high-cost startup, so to speak, from make sure you have your permitting correctly and, mm-hmm. and, and all the technical expertise and all that. And lo and behold, what happens is if they do that successfully, they, they, they have a proof of concept. They have a concept that's been proven. They find a customer that's mm-hmm. willing to engage. And they take that to the scale, what I like to say, which is we get purchasing efficiency. Right. So, you know, it's where, if you take a milk bottler, for instance, it's where he can buy enough bottles that he kind of gets that price break, right? Mm-hmm. And he's no longer a consumer. He's now considered a B2B customer. Right. That's the first step that our, that our farmers are taking these food manufacturing businesses. It's really to that, that purchasing efficiency. Mm-hmm. But what happens in that purchasing efficiency is you have a really inefficient labor Model. Right, right. right. It, I'm moving my jug from, you know, a left to right by yeah. <laughs> And so they get a lot of that inefficiency. But again, those communities, uh, particularly in our area, this agrarian community and, and older sex, um, generally have a lot of family labor. And mm-hmm. so they're able to take something that wouldn't otherwise not, it doesn't necessarily have a direct cost and use it for direct labor. And so that's what happens is they bank on that efficiency. But eventually, their consumer base and their volume grows to a point that that's not even possible. Right. And that's where we get to manufacturing efficiency. That's where mm-hmm. we start seeing the purchasing equipment into, um, you know, how do I efficiently handle my bottles? How do I efficiently handle my product? Mm-hmm. And we've seen everything... Uh, from, you know, just handling and bottling all the way out to shipping efficiencies and, and unique things going on there. So whether you're using UPS or FedEx, you know, how are we boxing, how are we labeling, all those sort of things just to cut down labor. Mm-hmm. And what it is is it allows them to grow their business and yet stay within their, their family labor model. Oh, interesting. Right? Yes. And so now I have labor efficiency and I have purchasing efficiency and that's where we really, as a, as a small community business, see them then jump off to profitability. Mm-hmm. And it can take years to get to that point. Because yeah. if you looked at that business, if you and I went into that business and we looked at how they're doing it, we'd say, there's no way this is profitable. Right. But if you consider the fact that early in, this, early in that business, the labor that they're taking, what, they're, what we, they'd otherwise have to pay for direct labor mm-hmm. is their profit. So they may be break even if you had to pay for labor. Right. But they're okay just taking the wage as as kind of their profit. Right. And so I, I like to, to liken it to contract poultry. Mm-hmm. Which is you know, if you if you have a contract house right. and you're taking care of someone else's birds who's providing mm-hmm. the feed and providing the heat and providing the bedding and providing everything, you're providing labor. And so right. After you pay for that house, the interest and in the principal in that house, and you get this free cash flow at the end of the year, that is your, that's your take-home pay for your labor. Mm-hmm. Our small manufacturing, food manufacturing businesses are doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. They move a deduction, but they don't have that direct labor, and so the profit they do have is otherwise would have been spent on labor. Right. So, so just the, the, so so go the, ahead. Do these businesses then scale, um, keep scaling so that they're more like a community-level business, or do they tend to stay pretty tightly scaled around a family? Both. Um, and so we've seen that, that really once they get to that operation efficiency or processing efficiency and the labor efficiency, 
we have seen we've seen businesses stay there and have mm-hmm. been fairly content. We've right. also seen businesses invest in new investments and really expand. I have a local farmer that um, started bottling his own raw milk. Mm-hmm. Didn't quite have the marketplace uh, to move 100% of his herd's product. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a Jersey herd with about 13,500-pound rolling herd average, Okay, uh, 30 heads. So, you know, you can do the math on how many pounds of milk that is. Right. But he was moving about 75% through his raw milk bottling program. Um, so he would he would either sell some to local creameries or he would have it made in the cheese for himself, and he started selling his own cheese. Um, and, and so what happened is he just started to see the demand kind of to grow. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, to that example I gave before, he had to invest in some bottling equipment because it was just becoming unruly. Right. And he wanted to, and he wanted to move his sales off farm a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we invested in that bottling equipment, still using family labor. Um, and all of a sudden, as soon as he moved off farm, he had a huge demand primarily from um, ethnic uh, Latino small mm-hmm. markets, which we have in Harrisburg and Reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the city of Lancaster. Um, that I had never realized at that point that you know there's a there's a strong demand for raw milk in those communities. Mm-hmm. And so um, so he wanted to fill that. And by dumb luck, Tara, he came to me and he had never <laughs> borrowed any money to get this operation on the ground. And he came to us and said, "Hey, would you lend me money to buy a refrigerated truck so I don't have to deliver five days a week? I could deliver three. Mm-hmm. So he bought a used Penske refrigerated mm-hmm. body truck, straight body, mm-hmm. and started delivering three days a week. He's back up to five. Right. <laughs> and that truck's full every day going out the lane. Mm-hmm. And he's at a point now where he, he's just at max capacity. And mm-hmm. his profitability is extremely high. Right. He's doing great. The farm's paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure he's interested in growing any longer. Yeah, you know, isn't I that something? For, he's just happy being a family business. Mm-hmm. But we've also seen uh, similar businesses over a couple of decades here in Lancaster that have gone into yogurt production or ice cream production, and they're now expanding into distribution. Mm-hmm. So a lot of their product is going to Philadelphia, you know, much larger yep. place. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're selling through food hubs and distributors, um, and they've gone a different direction. So mm-hmm. we, I, I really think what it is is if we temper our expectations and growth, and mm-hmm. we do it systematically and intentionally, mm-hmm. when you get to the point, there will be a decision to be made. Right, right. And, and you'll have the flexibility and ability to go ahead and make that intentional mm-hmm. decision instead of being reactionary. Right, right. Well, I, I think that's a, a great story because I think that, um, I, I mean, I, I, you and I were talking about this a bit before we started on the show, that, that rural... Um, well, certainly dairy is experiencing recession, if not depression, kind of um, um, climate. And um, rural communities are, around the country are really suffering. And so I think it's um, it, it's hard for people to believe that some of this small-scale stuff can actually work. It's so true. It's so true. And, and even... You know, I think a lot of it is is built up, and and I won't indict you know my fellow bankers and myself too much, but I think a right. lot is is built around this what I would consider to be. And again, I'm not going to try to pick too much on Amazon because I'm a client and mm-hmm. I like Prime as much as the next guy. Right. But, 
But if you think about it from an entrepreneur's perspective, Amazon can be a behemoth that you just say, how do you slay that thing, right? How am I right. actually going to find enough people that want to buy my product that won't just go online and do it? Mm-hmm. And I think we forget that entrepreneurs always find ways. Mm-hmm. And from a banker's perspective, you know, we know in credit risk that a small loan is is exponentially less risky than a large loan. Mm-hmm. And if you think about, you know, go from 2008 on through to where we're at today, the whole, you know, too big to fail, all those sort of things. Right, right. We have scaled up our banking models to be super efficient, similar to what Amazon would be. Mm-hmm. Except we're Amazon and banking. And so these very large banks and institutions and the models that trickle down through our regulators yeah. is really all about efficiency and safeguards. And, and so because the regulations have forced banking into an inefficient perspective, what happens is we have to find efficiency in our delivery. Mm-hmm. And so we, we streamline our delivery channels and we get less personal and it's more systematized and all those sort of things. And what we lose there is this, I like to call it, with my team, we call it business acumen. Mm-hmm. We lose the ability to look at somebody and say, I think they can do this. Right. And, and this is the kind do. of person who's going to find a way to make this work no matter exactly. what. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's what we try to do every day. And sometimes, I will admit that sometimes we do loans mm-hmm. that if you apply conventional accounting principles to, we mm-hmm. don't make money on. We actually lose money. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is that if you didn't apply this kind of funny math of accounting, mm-hmm. you're just fine on it, right? Mm-hmm. Risk versus right. reward, we are getting exactly what we deserve as a bank. Right. And and so we do on occasion, you know, five and ten thousand dollar loans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, I would say, you know, if I had to put a number to it, we're probably doing um, under fifty thousand. We're probably doing over two hundred a year in mm-hmm. our. That's a lot. Yeah. So and it, but it's part of this vision. It's part of we have to understand that if again, if the life cycle that I laid out is true and is accurate then we have to be there in that early proof of concept stage. Right, right. And if somebody came to me and said, I want to do a proof of concept and it's $5 million, you know and I know, can't do it. Right. Right? It, it, you've got to go find equity investors. You need to go mm-hmm. find people that will price to that risk, and we just can't. But if you come to me and say, I have a physical asset, which is called a farm, and I'm already growing my product. I just want to buy a piece of equipment to allow me to try something. And it's mm-hmm. five and fifteen thousand. I can do that with exist, existing equity in your in your business, mm-hmm. and I can provide generally flexible terms, and we can work together. Right. And my hope is that for every one of those I do, there's another one that did it and has expanded. Right. And we build a long term relationship. It's really that twenty year vision. Mm-hmm. I love the term slow money, but I know it has a different connotation. Yeah, yeah. What, what, we te- what we tease ourselves about here at Effort is we do slow banking. Yeah, no, right. and I think that's a good, it's a good distinction because I think the, um, for good or bad, slow money has gotten itself associated with um, the idea that people should essentially give people money, you know, 0% interest is fine or whatever. And I, and, and I in I tell people in Wisconsin, you know, we're like we're Germanic for the most part and Scandinavian and mm. you know, we are deep pocket short arms kind of culture here, right? And if you're gonna lend money to somebody, you better damn well get paid back and you yeah. should get some interest, right? 
So having a slow bank who has the luxury of having that time horizon is really special. I mean, that's the other problem. We just don't, lenders can't, don't have the luxury of that, right? Exactly. And it's, and it's really, that's where it, it's, the luxury is taken away simply by expectations. Mm-hmm. And it's taken away by expectations of our stockholders or yep. regulators, right, or just executive management. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's what makes Ephrata so unique, and that's why I chose Ephrata as a place to plant myself. Um, because we are, if you go in and look at our history, right. 100% organic growth is one. You know, the other is we've had visionaries along the way, and long they're, they're, they are still within the bank, but they are long gone long before I got here. Mm-hmm. In that we had two uh, individuals specifically that set up trust, and those trusts own a percentage of our bank. Mm-hmm. And so we have, you know, our capital, if you would, is very kind of very patient, slow to move, and very patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really gives us a lot of advantages. Yeah. But, you know, it is also a burden in, in I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. I just throw that out there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the, uh, the news, you know, this week is, is all about whether or not they're going to be complacent with the Super Bowl. Right. Right. Are they going to, and, and we, you know, in the model that I just espoused that's here at Africa, we can also not get complacent. We have to be right. cutting edge. We have to push ourselves. And that really comes down to intellectual integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the environment. If we can put the two things together, which is this hunger for the success of our clients, mm-hmm. but yet having confidence and, 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 you know, a foundation in the fact that our stockholders are, are understand that, you know, small returns are not small, but reasonable returns over a long period of time is better than a very quick buildup in a sell. Right. If right. we understand that, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, we can do good things in the community, and that's where yeah. we are. You know, I, I like to say that I, I sort of think that what happened with the original tech bubble is it created this weird expectation that from a historical perspective is weird, right? That mm-hmm. that this exponential return thing is what investors should be expecting, you know? And historically, we've this sort of 5% net income slow growth thing has kind of been the dominant model, right? Exactly. So, yeah. So it's kind of going back to that and saying, hey, this is a good thing. Way back early in my career, I um, it, it's funny, you know, we all go through, we all go through experiences and have different mm-hmm. paths to get to where we're at today. I have a degree in agricultural business, and at some point, I thought I wanted to be a stockbroker, and I went to work for Merle Lynch, uh-huh. and I was a financial advisor and a stockbroker at Merle Lynch. Uh-huh. And we would literally tell our clients all the time, it's you know, predictable, you know, fairly reasonable, slow gains, single digit, maybe you know, low double digit gains every year will make you you know millionaire when you retire. Right, right. And that was the focus, right? And there was another piece that I learned, which is individual stock ownership. Although it may be riskier, if it's done well, gives you more more you know return than say a mutual fund that has a net a net fee. Mm-hmm. And I believe. And so when I went into lending, investor <laughs> mindset with me. Yeah. And said, I want to invest in small business owners, although I'm mm-hmm. not an investor. Right. That, that idea of getting a small return every year over 20 or 25 years will, will provide, you know, it will provide profits and, frankly, equity and riches for my, my owners. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the perspective. If you think about it, if, if 
folks love investing in a stock market. Why wouldn't they love investing in an individual business? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's essentially what you're doing when you buy stock, whether it's directly or indirectly, sure. mutual, whatever. But it's really that, that investment mindset. And when you invest in money into something, what is your expectation that you're mm-hmm. going to get out of it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can't all be penny stock, you know, day traders. Right, right. Our economy right. just won't move on that. Mm-hmm. It'll be completely speculative in the in the bubbles, similar to what you said about the tech bubbles. So right, right. I think I think every community needs a bank that is planted, you know, similarly to effort a national bank, mm-hmm. and has that the right expectations of return. Right, right. And okay, so when I um. I travel around the country. I'm thinking of some communities that I've I've been um, working in, and I'm thinking, huh, I wonder, like, if you had a community bank that was there that is a little bit, um, I I don't know, is sort of intrigued by all this, like, how could, what what would you suggest they do if they want to kind of shift their philosophy a little bit, like, in the way that we're describing, particularly if they're in a rural community that is, you know, in this global, um, you know, the, the commodity agriculture global um, depression that we're in. Sure. So I think it's, it, there's a couple of pieces, and I'll try to rattle off a few, and hopefully I'll do it concisely. But I think first and foremost, we have to look at ourselves internally as an organization of a bank. And so if I was speaking directly to a banker, mm-hmm. what I would say similarly, uh, you know, same type of talk I have with my farmers, but is that we can't blame our troubles on our regulators. Mm-hmm. There's no, entirely too much the regulator won't let me do it in the marketplace. Right, right. And so the first thing you have to do is refute that mindset. Even though we, you know, if you got us all in a room, we'd all have an example of where the regulator is being unreasonable. Right. But, you know, as we tell our, as we tell our clients, you can't, you've got to have some absolutes in your equation. And in banking, the absolute has got to be the regulator. Mm-hmm. So they're always going to, ha- they're always going to, put a high burden on us and they're going to put certain rules around us that we have to abide by all those sort of things. And we can either spend our energy arguing with them or Mm -hmm. find a way to more efficiently get out there and do what we can do. And so I take the latter approach, which is I'm going to meet the regulators, you know, demands Mm -hmm. and I'm going to do it happily and save my energy. Right. And so that's the first thing. If I'm a small bank, I'm not going to use the excuse that, well, we're just a small bank. We'll never, Mm -hmm. the regulators are just crushing us. Find a way. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's what entrepreneurs do. They find a way. Right. So that's the first internal conversation I would have. The second is around training and staff development, which mm-hmm. is we need to train our frontline individuals that are in lending, uh, particularly, but also on, on the, you know, the banking services side, not to be just good bankers. A lot of the conversations that we have inside of banks around credit risk have no real application, with, whether it's nomenclature or business cycles in the marketplace. So we need to train our frontline folks that are interacting with our clients to be have the utmost business acumen. Mm. They need to understand gap accounting. They need to understand cash flow. They need to understand what working capital truly is and that it's not just a formula that our credit, you know. And right, a credit analyst out. fits out, yeah. You know, we need to understand cash to cash. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and, and that explains a lot of our credit risk. I have a saying on my own team that, you know, that every credit decision is not a good business decision. Mm-hmm. But every good business decision is an easy credit decision. Mm-hmm. Right? So if we take that same approach and help our customers 
you know, either through providing them information or resources or tools to make good business decisions, mm-hmm. our loan decision secondary to that is really easy. Mm-hmm. But again, when we get in this battle of efficiency, we kind of want it delivered to us on a silver platter. Right. So I, I tend to think that's partly because we've, we're not training our frontline folks in the right way. And so I think if we're on the front line, we train the business acumen. If we're in the back office administration, we train the credit policy and regulation. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the, there's the two things that I'd look at internally. If I'm encouraging a bank to go external, I would say find partners. And the reason is you may not have an ag department today. And you're right. to build. So I would hire an ag expert. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also work with USDA, FSA, and SBA to really get up to speed on their programs. Mm-hmm. Because if we truly, if we all understood that and took full advantage of it, and again, it's a slow model and it's a lot of work, it's a heavy lift. But when we look at it from a banking perspective, having a government guarantee on a loan really makes that loan from an ROA or an ROE perspective mm-hmm. extremely profitable. Right. And so it meets the internal need as well as the external need. Um, in addition to that, I would start talking to your EDCs. We call them EDCs, Economic Development Councils. So that would, you know, might, might be your CDFIs and all those sort of things. Um, but, you know, talk to those folks that are out there in the business community that are, that are touching and having conversations with farmers. And you'll start to find an interaction in the agricultural marketplace that kind of meets your commercial lending or maybe even your lifestyle programs. You're going to find an intersect. Because farmers, if, if I have a, a, a very high level of expertise in residential lending, farmers live on every farm. Right. right? I, there's very few farms in right. my community that I lend mm-hmm. that a farmer doesn't live there. It's also a residence. And so you can mm-hmm. intersect there. If you have a great commercial and industry uh, program or, or acumen, you could find farmers that are doing things like we, what we've been talking about, added yep. value processes. And, and you're going to find that your agricultural risk becomes less of a concern. It looks more like a C&I loan to you mm-hmm. than it does an agricultural loan. And just start small and start slow and kind of wade into the shallow end of the pool until you get mm-hmm. where you're comfortable in the deep end. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the approach I would look. And the third, steal ideas from other ag lenders. Yeah. We have, we have a great community of ag lenders. I, I've worked at Farm Credit for a number of years. I have a tremendous respect for the folks over there, um, as well as my fellow you know, bankers and community banks and, and large national banks. We can steal ideas and share ideas with each other all the time because at the end of the day, it's really about providing an environment for our farmers to have the highest probability of success mm-hmm. and to, to provide... Um, a a level of national security within our own country to provide food for our people. That's Mm -hmm. our first burden. And so we have to share and share alike so that we can create this environment. It's not all at the micro level of competition. Sometimes it's more at the global level of industry. Mm -hmm. And so to the degree that I can help folks or peers of mine can help folks, we, we need to share and we just need someone to raise their hand and say, we're interested. How do we do this? Yeah, I think in in my neck of the woods, I've I think there are two things that I've observed. Um, now, my neck of the woods involves um, a lot of agriculture and a lot of conventional agriculture, and in places like this, the lending communities have a really hard time. It's because of that, probably because of that training up that you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. They have a really hard time 
even understanding the credit risk with these value-added enterprises. And so they kind of go to no really fairly fast. Yeah, and that's and that's really, you know, where we have to check ourselves as individual bankers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because the first couple of deals you do in this space will it's going to be a heavier lift. Yeah. It it's scary. It is. It is. And it's it's heavier to work through all the questions. Um and that's where we just have to have an internal alignment within our our own organizations and we have to vet those questions. Mm-hmm. And to a certain degree you have to find the right client to work with. Right, if a client right. came to me and it was my first deal, and they wanted something tomorrow, I probably, mm-hmm. I would just have to say sorry, it's out of my wheelhouse. But to to walk in nice and slow and to set the right expectation with the client, and then have that internal conversation, a real conversation, and every bank or a lender knows what that feels like, right? When you're having mm-hmm. that meaty conversation around real issues and someone's not throwing darts, and right. you think that you take the approach of saying, if we were to do this, what are our options? Mm-hmm. If we have that conversation, I believe that you do the first deal, and then you replicate it, and you mm-hmm. replicate it, replicate it, you replicate mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And it will take a little bit of sharing of knowledge, because like I had mentioned before, these added value food businesses look more like C&I than they do ag on occasion. Right. But mm-hmm. this is what there is. If you have a farmer that's going into that business, and so they have production agriculture and the, mm-hmm. the added value business... The problem is your C&I lender, boy, wants no part of agricultural. Problems. Right. They have no idea. That is exactly the problem. And then the, if the ag people, all they want to do is traditional agriculture because the other part is scary, um, then they're, then these folks really don't have anywhere to go. Exactly. And that's where, you know, it really becomes the bank's responsibility to partner up, partner up that mm-hmm. expert inside mm-hmm. the bank. The customer mm-hmm. shouldn't have to find that lender and figure out where they fit themselves within a certain organization. We should, yeah, we they should can't. know that, that application. It's, yeah, it's too complicated for them. I mean, I, I think one of the things that has happened out here is that um, that's part of what I, when I work with ag clients, that's part of what I do is is all this, like, well, right. this, this program, I've taken it upon myself as a technical assistance provider to learn about the programs and say, well, you know, if you put this um, FSA program together with with a you know term loan from somebody else, and Bob, this this would all come together. Um, but my doing that as I travel around the country, I have come to realize that there are very very few people who can do that technical assistance right now. Exactly. And and I think it was at the training you had mentioned that if you're going to get into this food manufacturing space or food business, mm-hmm. you really have to be very familiar with SBA. Yeah, you right? do. And, mm-hmm. and I am, I, I got to say, I am no, nowhere near an SBA expert, but mm-hmm. I know enough to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. But I can also tell you that my commercial, my commercial group, which does not report to me and is a separate team, right. are SBA experts. I bet they are. They know. They know who's at SBA to talk to. They know how to get it through. They can do it efficiently. They can package mm-hmm. it. Long. They do them every day long, all day long. But but if you look from the ag side, boy, we would struggle. On the yeah. other hand, we can do FSA loans in our sleep. Right. Right. So right. what if we partner? Yeah. Yeah, I, that, that's the thing. Yeah, getting these, getting to partner and then getting a, a bank that is willing to do the work, right? As you said, this isn't, that's probably the bigger issue, right? 
And that's probably, you know, the, the, the message that I would, if I was speaking to a room of bankers, that's what I would, it, maybe it's an indictment as well as an opportunity to say, mm-hmm. as bankers, we have to be willing to do the work. We have to be willing to do the work. You know, fintech and all those things within our own industry today are threats, but they are not threats when it comes to an individual that needs assistance. Mm-hmm. Right? When somebody needs help, they need help. Right. So we have to be willing and able to do that help, not direct, not compete directly against, you know, an app that will give you a $10,000 loan in a heartbeat. Right. Right. That, that fits some. And I... Oh, my God. I can't even imagine that working for the kinds of stuff that we do. Like, I think about it. It doesn't even, I, yeah, it won't work. It's going to be a long time before that's going to work. Well, and I will say this. You know, one of the challenges that we have experienced here, whether it's in um, what we consider to be our, our uh, new gen farmers, which are really sustainable, organic, local providers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges uh, is that they did not, find the right lender getting started, and they put it all on credit cards. I get it. I see it all the time. And that is so hard because once you go to that credit card lender, it's, it's easy lender, but it, it now falls under this organization called the CFPB, right, which is mm-hmm. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Mm-hmm. It is not easy for me to take that credit card as a commercial lender and refinance it out into the appropriate capital structure. It, is, mm-hmm. it can be done. It's a tremendous amount of paperwork. It's a tremendous burden of documentation, and we do do it. Mm-hmm. But if I could say anything to that startup business, is go talk to a lender earlier rather than... Right. Right. And I think that's that's part of the... There's this, I don't know, and maybe it's this generation, maybe, I don't know what it is, but there's this, uh, there's a, a presumption that, that lenders are never going to lend to them, so we're going to do this credit card thing. Um, yeah. You're absolutely right, and and um, I have a I have a 16 year old. It's funny. I have a 16 year old son and an 18 year old son and a 13 year old daughter. But uh-huh. my boys are at the age now where they're both making money and have their mm-hmm. own. And um, my 18 year old son walked into a bank branch. Uh huh. Did not have a great experience. Yeah. And, and you know it was kind of like one of those days. It was a Saturday and it was mm-hmm. busy. And, you know, you could we could justify it away, but didn't have a great experience. And he's like, right. I'll just open it up on this app somewhere. I'll get my own checking account. Right. And I, you know, dad being a... a dad being a banker, you're like, oh, no. Exactly. Yeah. So I said, nope, you will open a checking account the traditional way, you know. Mm-hmm. But so I brought him into our main branch, which you would say, boy, is, you know, he, I believe he's a millennial or he's one of those yeah, yeah. You know, next generation yeah, millennials. Right. Um, so I bring him into our main branch. I didn't bring him in. I sent him in. And, mm-hmm. uh, but our main branch is marble, you know, granite marble. Right, it's beautiful. Right. There's a big, huge vault there. I mean, this is not what you would consider those folks. You know, they, you would think they'd want to walk into something that looked more like an Apple store. Right. Than the 1929. Yeah, bank, yeah, right? yeah. Carnegie Library kind of look. Yeah. Exactly. But, uh-huh. you know, Bill, my son, he walks in and he talks to the branch manager and she opened up a bank account for him. And, you know, there was a transformation. And he wouldn't have been there if Dad didn't force him to be there. I right. That's the one caveat. But there was a transformation because he was educated. Mm-hmm. Around the banking account. That's mm-hmm. it. He opened up a checking account. And now Jesse, who is the branch manager, mm-hmm. is, is, you know, is, is a colleague and a friend. He calls the bank. You know, she's his banker. I've heard him right. say friends. Right. And, oh, what a hoot. So 
you know, it's funny that technology is a wonderful thing. It makes us all extremely efficient. But we also have to understand that when we take that approach to certain financial items, we're also losing something. Mm -hmm. And there is power and value in the relationship that you pull between two individuals Mm -hmm. when you take the time. And And a consumer should be aware that if I engage with technology, I am giving something up. I get price, but I am also giving up product. And that product is the expertise. And so I think, you know, if I was a small business owner, I would encourage, or, or I would encourage small business owners to go and interview bankers, to meet mm-hmm. them, walk in a branch, find something that feels the way you want to do business, and then mm-hmm. develop that relationship. Right. You know, and I, I say this. Um, you've heard me say this that it there's so there's. Uh, if you're in the food business or ag, you are never going to grow out of the need for working capital support because of the nature exactly. of the industry. Um, and so you need a relationship with the lender. And and thinking that that's going to happen some virtual way is, um, it, it's not the way the world is working right now. Let's put it that way. Well, and, and if you think about it, from a small business perspective, you don't have a CFO you right. are your CEO, you know, production manager, mm-hmm. chief marketer. You're yep. all those things. So from a small business perspective, don't you want an expert in an area that you're not an expert? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't there be value in being the technical expert in your field and yet lean on somebody maybe a little bit to, to the degree that it's uncomfortable, lean on somebody's expertise in an area that's not right. your field, right? And so, um, and so I, that, I like that. Yeah, it goes back to your comment about needing to, you know, train people within the bank because, yeah, yeah, because I got people leaning on banks and the bankers don't know any better than they do what the possibilities are, especially with these weird combination of ag and processing, you know, that cross disciplines within banking. It's like, huh, they don't really understand what's possible either. Yes, yes. And we do know that, you know, there's... For every good banker, there may be one out there that's inexperienced yeah, and not yeah. doing a great job. We do know that you know the sales culture within banks can be a detriment to mm-hmm. to borrowers, all those sort of things, and that's why I really encourage that interview process mm-hmm. and ask the tough questions. I have a I have a client right now that has engaged us um, mm-hmm. to do some pretty big things, and you know he's he's asked to meet with our CEO. Mm-hmm. It's going to take some time, but we're going to get it done. Right. I don't. I did not see that as an affront to my authority within the bank or anything. It's it's totally normal. And if I was this individual, I'd probably ask the same thing. Mm-hmm. Which it really gets down to: how do you quantify quantify the safety and soundness of a bank? Right. If you right. just took my word for it, mm-hmm. I'd be flattered if you trusted me. Right. But. Frankly, if we say, if we take a, an approach that says, you know, don't tell it, show it, mm-hmm. then we need to bring them in and give somebody a deeper dive into the bank. And, and again, I don't care if you're, if you're looking at a $10 million, you know, banking relationship or a $10,000 banking relationship. This is where we can't, we cannot put the value of a customer on how much business they, they do with the bank. We mm-hmm. have to put the value of a customer on the individual Mm-hmm. And in which case, and that may come from my, you know, farm credit co-op days, you know, one sure. member, one vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it, but it truly is the same, right? Which is the if you're a ten thousand dollar customer, you're still a customer. If you're ten million dollars, mm-hmm. you're still a customer. Right. So, so what we do treat you, everyone equally? 
Yeah. So what happens when folks um, come in and you're doing your work with them and um, they just don't have enough equity in coming sure. into the deal? What, what are some of the things that you do with folks where you are? So that's, that's an excellent question because the, the piece that we have to be most empathetic in delivering is a denial, right? Mm-hmm. So, as, so every banker, um, every good lender will know, will have a good sense of that application up front. You know, what's the, what's the probability that this is going to get approved mm-hmm. the way that it's presented? And so we try to coach our folks very early on to ask the tough questions at application stage mm-hmm. so we don't get caught surprising a customer down the road. Right. And so we talk about alternatives early and often is, our, is mm-hmm. what we say. But, in a, you know, inevitably, sometimes they just don't have enough equity or, or the mm-hmm. cash flow is too, uh, is too tight or those sort of things. And, and we know we're moving towards denial. So in banking, from a regulator's perspective, is, is we have to be very careful with fiduciary uh, oversight or fiduciary control of an individual business. And so we have to take the application the way it's presented. Mm-hmm. So that's a regulatory rule that says you have to make a decision on that application. So if someone comes in and says, I need a $150,000 loan and I want, it, I want to take it for 20 years and it's on a truck. Right. That's not doable. The asset's not going to be here in 20 yep. years. Yeah. All those sort of things. And so, but we have to decision it that way if that's the way the client insists on making the application. And so we, we can decision that for a denial, but we can counter offer. And that's mm-hmm. where the, the customers don't often understand the process. Uh-huh. So, so really, we are always looking, if, as we bring an application in, as it's getting closer to denial, we're asking ourselves, is there a viable counteroffer? Right. What are some things that we can do? So we do use government guarantees with FSA. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, in addition to that, sometimes dads might have some equity. Yeah. that's, again, a, probably a privilege of doing business in Lancaster County. Yeah. That, you know, dad can come alongside and either mm-hmm. provide additional collateral or maybe a guarantee or something. Yep. Of that. Um, we'll look for some of those church partners to come yep. in with support that debt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're really at that point, we're kind of taking an approach to say, if this is a viable business, again, a good business decision. Yeah. How would we structure this in a way that that is within the risk tolerance of the bank? Right. If we can answer that, mm-hmm. we will provide a counteroffer. <laughs> Yeah, isn't that wonderful? So that is not, again, this is a symptom or or this is what is possible when you have staff who are educated about business and and specifically in this kind of business. Because usually what I see is just, nope, can't do it, not enough equity. And I'm I'm always like, okay, then these are people who are working with me. At least then they have somebody like me who can say, okay, in order to get to yes, we're going to have to go find a guarantee, exactly. you know, or we're going to have to. And I, with FSA and those, I, I, I usually identify those things ahead of time mm-hmm. with the client, you know, so we don't even go to the bank before we have that. But sometimes it's just like, up, oh, this is on the border. So I would love it if more banks came back with a counteroffer like you're describing, because that would be so helpful. Exactly. And in the event that we can't provide a counteroffer, we can't mm-hmm. see our way through, and we actually have a denial, mm-hmm. our approach is that we don't send the denial letter, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to have a conversation. Yep. If somebody invested a few hours in our bank to yep. give us the opportunity to look at their application, 
The mm-hmm. least we can do is invest an hour to educate them mm-hmm. on why we made the decision we made. Mm-hmm. And all too often, and we're, you know, bankers are human, and this is where I might give bankers a little bit of a, a pass. That's a hard message to deliver. Of course you have to say is. to somebody, no, right? And our first, everybody believes that your, your borrower or your applicant is going to be upset with you or angry with you. But if you take the approach that, of education and say, mm-hmm. this is why, and let me show you your numbers. I'm going to teach you something about your business that you may not have seen yourself. Then it, it's just maybe, and the answer looks more like not now, mm-hmm. but when you get here, let's talk again. Mm-hmm. And even to the degree that sometimes we, we stay in very close contact until then, right? Yeah, and so, that's nice too. And, and it's just about having integrity around that relationship. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and of course that's the borrower or the applicant's call, right? If right. they say, hey, you know, we've got another bank and we're just going to move on. That's okay mm-hmm. too. Uh, there are days where the you know our institution's risk tolerance doesn't meet that of the borrower's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no harm, no foul. I uh, you know we we have lots of cliches in my in my office. If you haven't noticed that already, mm-hmm. you know we we say that you know lending is done toe to toe, eyeball to eyeball, and hand to hand. Right? It is a high contact sport, mm-hmm. and you know sometimes you just got to shake hands and part friends. Right. Um, but I want somebody to think, boy, I gained from my interaction with Bill or his people, mm-hmm. I didn't lose. Yeah. Even if I didn't get the loan, mm-hmm. that's the experience that I want at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's what I want people to feel. So, so it's really having a laser focus on that experience. Mm-hmm. So I, I, one of the th- other things that I've experienced in this world that we're talking about is um, young farmers with, with, um, maybe they have some student loans, maybe they, but they have a weak personal balance sheet, right? And then, mm-hmm. then they want us, they want to get into a farm enterprise and maybe they've been renting some land and doing stuff. So they have experience. Um, but, but it's going to be a heavy lift to buy a farm. And That's so right. in that scenario, I often have, um, a lot of, egg lender kind of advice is, well, you shouldn't even be trying to own this farm right now. You should just try to keep doing this, except that if you're doing this, meaning renting land or something, except that in my view, all they're doing is improving the value of somebody else's land and therefore somebody else's balance sheet. And it's a great recipe for, you know, indentured servitude. So I have a philosophy that, yes, even though you're going to be incredibly leveraged in the beginning, it's a long-term good thing to do. So I'm just curious what you think about all that. I think that's a great philosophy. And it's exactly the way you kind of, you placed it there, which is it's a great recipe for indentured servanthood, right? Um, Indentured servanthood, for instance, you know, historically served a purpose, but mm-hmm. time. And so, you know, if it's if it's a young couple or or you know, man or woman coming out of high school and they say, "Boy, I want to do this," and they can rent a farm, it's a fairly ro- low risk venture. They can gain some experience. That's understandable. There's a time and a place for that. But there comes a point in everybody's business where you got to make that decision: is I'm going to walk the plank. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to stay in the safety of the boat. Right. And so I, I am a firm believer that you should walk the plank sooner than later. And part of that just comes down to the reality 
of age. Mm-hmm. And I've seen so many farmers rent for 10 or 15 years. They get somewhat complacent in that rent. And now, boy, they just don't have the energy to buy the farm and to take that risk. Because at any point in our area, at any point you buy a farm, you're going to leverage up. All right. The difference right. is, are you leveraging up at 65% or 78%? Right, right, right exactly. Now, if you're leveraged at 100%, that might be a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, you know, there's not a big field difference. And a lot of times it's just what I like to say, leveraging the cash flow. Mm-hmm. So when you're younger in your career, and generally speaking, that comes with age, mm-hmm. um, you've got a lot more energy. Right. And sometimes in order to get beyond that leveraged position, it just takes effort. It just mm-hmm. takes, you know, dedication, perseverance, and working long and hard hours. But if an individual does that, I have full confidence that despite what the agricultural marketplace is doing, you'll survive and you'll be better for it. Mm-hmm. So I tend to take the principle of what you take. That being said, how do we do it as a lender? FSA is our friend. Yeah. Right? And so FSA has their farm purchase program. Uh, which you can partner with FSA Direct as well as a lender, and you need 5% down. Right. That is a wonderful program. So if you rent it for three years and maybe, you know, and, and again, in that first three years, you know, if you finance 100% of your dairy herd, we'll use as an example, mm-hmm. you should be making payments, you know, with gusto um, to build equity. Right. Every payment you make, every dollar of principal you put down is a dollar you can borrow against when you go to buy real estate. Mm-hmm. And so if you've paid the herd off and you're now in that position, you may have very little money to put down. All you need is 5%. You can Mm -hmm. remortgage the herd if you had to, or Mm -hmm. maybe you have that cash. And now you can can get into that farm with a, I think what the number is, is 50% from the lender on the first mortgage and 45% from FSA. And FSA guarantees the first mortgage to Mm -hmm. 90%. Mm -hmm. So my bank... On that, in that scenario, if it's a million dollars and we have a half million dollar loan out there, mm-hmm. we have $50,000 worth of risk. Worth of risk, right. Right. So that's an easy loan for me to make. And, yep. But here's the trouble. That's a big payment to make to the, to the customer. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the big payment to make means what? Long hours. Work right. Hard. I'd much rather do that in my 20s and 30s than my 40s, 50s, or 60s, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just reality of life. And right. I don't know that I could have said that 20 years ago, Tara. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Maybe I not get to the type on where I'm at. <laughs> I know. No. And you always think that you're going to be, have the same energy level and everything else forever. And that isn't true, but I, I, yeah. So I'm, I'm philosophically in the same place you are. Um, and it's not always possible, but I work really hard to try to get people an equity position. I mean, I, I have a I have an example now that's not a farming example, but somebody who um, started a, a, a she she had a toffee brand, and then I helped her open a cafe, and the cafe did really well, and so I helped her actually get um, purchase an old bakery on the other side of town where she put her cafe in, and she had recently had a a catastrophic fire in the first location. And had she not owned the real estate in the second location, there is no way she would have made it through this. But she had a personal, yeah, the business had a balance sheet. And so everybody hung in there, right? Um, Yeah. So I think in some ways that that philosophy um, translates into non-farm, you know, 
businesses as well. Well, and even if, you know, I mentioned earlier here that, you know, I work for Merrill Lynch. I mean, that's even went into my philosophy on how I personally invest, which is I love stock ownership because it's about ownership in a company, mm-hmm. not speculation in a stock price. Right, right. Right. There's just something about ownership. And I think you relate, you know, kind of that Wisconsin culture, which is you own your company and you have it and you. Yeah, right. And you sell it to your, you, you don't sell it, you pass it to your grandkids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's funny is it's done so well. Mm-hmm. It's not the it's not the perfect model. We all know that, mm-hmm. but that you know generally that philosophy has done well for our economy is you know as an American economy, and so I think we can replicate that at all levels of business, whether it's very very small mm-hmm. you know micro businesses all the way up to the largest business. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that. It's it's it is a philosophy though. That's for sure. It so is. It is. so is your your local do you well. I have a couple of questions. So first of all, do you only lend in Lancaster County? No, we, uh, we only lend in Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, and we've got, I think we're up to 12 counties or 14 mm-hmm. counties now. Okay. Uh, we'll go out as far as Franklin County in Pennsylvania, so that's west. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go as far north as Juniata County. Mm-hmm. And then we go as far, we don't go quite as far east, although I like to, to work in Philadelphia and some of the urban environments, mm-hmm. it just gets my blood flowing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it is where your cus- your your um, customers are. Your like you, you know your, yeah, yeah. the consumers are. Yeah. And so when I get to go in there, I actually like to bring home insights from the consumer to my. Oh, customers. sure. I just yeah. enjoy that side of business. So we go as far east as Chester, Montgomery, Lehigh. Mm-hmm. But we will lend in other areas if given the opportunity, kind of in those, you know, around those areas. And so mm-hmm. uh, we just make exceptions to do that. But our speed right. at lending area is kind of that footprint. So mm-hmm. we're, really a, we're really a Pennsylvania bank. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, and then you told me that you, um, so I, I think one of the other things that um, I find interesting about the um, Mennonite Nominish communities is this um, commitment to buy a farm for your kids. Mm-hmm. It's for the boys, right? Uh, generally the boys, but we do see dad-in-laws, as we like to call them, you know, helping out a young couple, you know, mm-hmm. that might be a daughter. Okay. So it's, it's really... I think, and I may be speaking out of turn, um, but you know, my experience is that generally speaking, dad helps the son when he gets married to get mm-hmm. on a farm. Okay, yeah. And so, but where dad can help the son, a dad-in-law, the father of the of the daughter, mm-hmm. will help out. And, and you know, some folks have been really fortunate in that relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, that's so foundational to their livelihood for the future. Right. And it's, it's kind of like instead really of is. saving for college, that's what they're doing. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing is, you know, they, from a very early age uh, in those communities, there's a lot of emphasis on the children saving money for themselves. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's something else I've learned, which is, you know, they, at, they'll get jobs at 13 years old and, mm-hmm. You know, they tie it to the church, they put half of it away, and then mm-hmm. they get some spending money. But learning mm-hmm. that kind of save for the future because, and you'll hear it often, I, because someday I want to buy a farm. Yeah. You know, and these kids yeah. are 18 years old with $50,000 in the bank. Mm-hmm. 
right? <laughs> it's it's a little bit every year for a number of years. Right, right. And um, and so they do put a very strong cultural emphasis on saving money while you're young. Hmm. So do you think? Do you think what you do and the success of your ag lending in your community is, uh, how to say this, that that it only works because you're in Lancaster County and you have this unique um, community there? Or do you think it's replicable in other parts of the country? I really think it's replicable in other parts of the country. Um, I do think there's maybe an inherent advantage that we've been given. I just don't think it's to the success, uh, to the level that we would say it's because that's why we're successful or mm-hmm. that, you know, without it, we'd be a failure. Right. I believe that it's, it's kind of what those things that I laid out before, which is, you know, uh, the expectations of our stockholders and stakeholders within our own mm-hmm. organization, the commitment to grow slow and grow long and grow organically. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's the care and commitment that we exercise towards our customers or, frankly, anyone, anyone we engage in the community. Right. It's, mm-hmm. that, it's that integral piece around our experience. I, and it's the business acumen. It's how we train our employees. It's all those things put together. I think you could curtail it to any community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think every community has an inherent advantage. And I, you know, and I, I do a fair bit of thinking around these things and reading. I'm kind of a business junkie a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, and so when I think of a, of a place like, um, I was in Detroit for a conference one time, and I just was struck by, I was flying in over the city, you know, into the airport, by how many streets don't have houses on them. Right. right. It's just, it, to me, it looks, you can't call it vacant lot. It looked like farm fields with roads that went between them. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, or they were you know, uh, yeah. cut up by by roads. And so, mm-hmm. and I was just struck by that. And I thought, boy, if I had that much open space in Philadelphia, you know what kind of urban farm I could have? Right, right. Right, that I could actually roll a tractor through the street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and I say that a little bit in jest and a little yep. bit ignorantly, but there's an advantage there, even in the midst of despair. Mm-hmm. And I think it's our job as financial folks and, frankly, community investors to find the the advantage, you know, it's my my grandmother always told me, learn to make lemonades out of lemons, mm-hmm. right? And and so where's the lemonade in that situation? Boy, I could farm it. Or, mm-hmm. you know, what if we we could build a new community on the old infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Right. What an advantage! I I go through Philadelphia a lot, and I love Philly. Yeah, I'm an Eagles fan. Uh, yeah. But, you can't say enough that they're world champions, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that, you know, one of the burdens we have is the old buildings. Yeah. Right. And so where there, where there are no more buildings, boy, what an advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I really think it could work in a, in a multitude of communities. I also believe that if we set an expectation out there and we, we educate the existing, you know, the, the current generation or the future generation, to how to do business well, you know, whether they're, they have a bachelor's of business management or, or they're just entrepreneurs that have no formal education, there are certain entities within our communities, and, banker, and banks are one of them, mm-hmm. that can educate our customers. If we do that, I think we show them kind of where the city on the hill is, and mm-hmm. they can go get it. I, I have, you know, just a, um, an extreme confidence in the, in the tenacity of the small business owner. Mm-hmm. And so 
if we can help them and give them tools and education, all those sort of things, I just think they're going to go out and do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so really, it's a, there's a faith element. It's funny, we just had a meeting this morning where I was talking to my team, and, and I said, you know, when we do it this way, we have to understand there's a faith element in this. I can't mm-hmm. promise you that a particular action will result in a certain amount of business. Mm-hmm. But what I can promise you is that the accumulated an aggregate effect of all the little actions we do will result in a sustainable and a profitable business model. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, it is. It's like putting the energy out there, right? I'm a big believer in that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so there is a faith element, and it's okay to be somewhat uncomfortable with that. But mm-hmm. just like that, that small business owner that's got to make a decision at some point to walk the plank, Right. We as bankers have to walk the same plank. Mm -hmm. That's our chosen profession. And so I do think that this model of slow banking Mm -hmm. can be be expanded and replicated over any community, whether Mm -hmm. it's an agricultural community or an urban urban community or a rural community. I think it's a philosophy. It's it's a posture. And if you employ it, I think it, it can only be successful. Mm-hmm. Slow banking. I love it. <laughs> no, seriously, I do. Because I think we, we've, uh, I don't know, people who know less about business have gone to like, we're going to save farming and save in local food. And so they, they start creating little micro lending funds and things and they just can't scale enough and they never really mm-hmm. understood enough about business. And so my whole thing is we don't actually, we have the financial system we need. We just need to get it working better, you know? That's exactly right. And that. Yeah. You know, alongside a passion and food, and I am a foodie, mm-hmm. and all those sort of things, my other passion is exactly what you mentioned there, which is get our financial institutions working better. Mm-hmm. I think it's there. I think we can do it. I think educating the consumers that you don't have to accept a certain delivery channel. You can mm-hmm. if you choose, but there's also this other choice. It's kind of like, you know, good Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. There's good Whole Bankers as well. Right, right. Well, we've covered a tremendous amount of ground. Have we missed something? I don't, I, not that I can uh, put my finger on at the moment, but I, okay. I enjoyed the conversation. It's yeah. Well, invoking. yeah, yeah. I very thought for broken and, and for not just for, um, for lenders, but also for entrepreneurs, because I think it, I mean, it shows that, that, um, that there's a tremendous amount of respect, I think, among people like myself and you for what entrepreneurs do, and we get what they go through because I certainly went through it myself. So, um, yeah, there, 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 help is out there. I guess is the message. Well, you've heard the old adage that when you you know those that can't teach, I believe those that aren't entrepreneurs are bankers. And we're going to leave lawyers out of it entirely because they've been educated uh, out to take risk out of everything. Everything, everything. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, as much as I I would love to call myself an entrepreneur, as much as I would love to do it, I've got a tremendous respect um, for the entrepreneur out there. I also know that my own personality and limitations and risk tolerance yeah, it's Start a small business. And so, yeah. you know, I have, I have a tremendous respect for the entrepreneur. And I think the entrepreneur just has to understand that there's those of us out there in banking 
that that are willing to help mm-hmm. and are willing to put the effort forth um, and understand what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it's been fabulous to talk to you today. Keep doing all the amazing work you're doing, and um, we will be talking again, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Tara. It was yep. a pleasure. Yep. Take care. Yep. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. Thank you.